I'm Richard Sherman, and you're listening to my Audible original, The League. Equal parts history, social commentary, and entertainment. We'll focus on some of football's most unlikely, inspiring, and unbelievable stories. Be sure to check out this title and other great storytelling at audible.com. while regularly playing against all male teams, Samantha Gordon of Salt Lake City compiled 25 touchdowns and 1,911 rushing yards. Gordon's father uploaded a highlight video to YouTube that generated nearly 5 million views in its first week. His recording of her football prowess garnered attention from the National Football League. Six years later, in 2018, then 14-year-old Samantha, winner of the league's first Game Changer Award for her work, shared a piece of information that, until then, may have only been known to a select group of people. I want to let you all in on a little secret. Girls love football. (laughs) But what Sam Gordon didn't share is that girls don't only love football, girls know football. And in today's NFL, there's a new generation of women who are not only in the stands on Sunday, they're in NFL front offices all across the league on Monday. And that's no secret. Today, we explain how it happened and who's responsible for it. This is The League. Audible Originals presents a Joy Road Entertainment production. I'm your host, Taylor Rooks. Throughout its history, the NFL has always depended on women to play key roles in the foundation and evolution of the league. When Art Rooney was looking for a new name for his Pittsburgh Pirates, Miss Mary O'Donnell, who had married the team's ticket manager, suggested Steelers. Corinne Griffith, wife of Washington Redskins founder George Preston Marshall, designed uniforms for both the team and the marching band. And Francis Upton, Broadway star and wife of Burt Bell, the league's first commissioner, put up the money for him to buy the Philadelphia Eagles franchise. In today's NFL, nearly a quarter of the league's executive positions belong to women. The league's fan base is also nearly split evenly by gender. But the wave of female fandom isn't the girlfriends or wives of their partners. They're highly educated, highly engaged, and more highly knowledgeable of the game than ever before. On the weekend, Jane Kosen from the New York Times is a complete and total football fanatic. I love football. I think I need to be more clear. I love football. I think football is the most beautiful sport on earth. I love the tackles. I love saying things like, oh, that's definitely holding, or that's coming back, blocking the back to no one, when I am totally alone. Every play is a chess match, and every play is a question. Here's what the offense will do. Now what will the defense do? Every play call is mapped out days ahead of time. Every scenario considered. And yet, like in life, every play call is totally uncertain. Because what if you fumble? Or what if you just fall down? What happens now? What about now? What will my team do now? What now? 
Like many football fans, Jane Coaston got started on the road to football love by watching games with her father. Unfortunately, it was the Cincinnati Bengals in the 1990s, and they were pathetically bad, historically awful. Sometimes my dad would just give up sometime in the third quarter and go outside and work in his wood shop, just walk away. Because man, when the Bengals lost, it was, they lost big. And my dad is not a big conversationalist. He wasn't exactly making a lot of small talk with me when I was 10 or 11. So a lot of those games we spent in silence, particularly if the Bengals lost. And again, they lost a lot, but sometimes they won and then things were good. Nothing had changed, of course, but you know, I was still a kid and my dad was still my dad and the world was still the world, but things were good. In her daily life, Jane Coaston is the host of a New York Times podcast called The Argument, where she tries to hash out some of the biggest debates in all culture and politics, from abortion to the death penalty to what kids should learn in school. My whole job is arguments, and yet nothing prepares you for politics like arguing with randoms on the internet about fourth down conversion rates. When kids ask me for advice about getting into political reporting, I always tell them, start out reporting on sports because you'll never work harder or have to deal with more irritating people. I have to say that football makes me better at my job. Over the past five years, the NFL has tried to listen to women like Jane, the result of which has been a rise in both popularity and participation of women in the NFL. And it can be traced back to 2015, when the league created the Women's Career in Football Forum, a yearly two-day event designed to create a pipeline for women to work in the NFL. And it is due, in part, to a league executive who was once a professional football player herself, and also a believer in the transformational power of the game of football. Her name is Sam Rappaport. I think the sport is phenomenal, what it does to this country, how it brings people together who may have completely different viewpoints in life, but can find a commonality in football and the way it brings families together really in the country and in the world is motivating. And I'm obsessed with the sport itself. I love watching it. I love dissecting it. I love everything about it. Sam Rappaport loved it so much that while in college at McGill University in Montreal, she decided she wanted a career in football. Now, at that time, the NFL had just established its first internship program, and she decided to apply. But concerned that her resume wouldn't stand out among all the competition, she did something that no applicant had ever done and has never done since. Because I played tackle football and I was a quarterback, I decided to send a football, an actual football with my resume. And on the football, I wrote, what other quarterback could accurately deliver a ball 386 miles, which was the distance between my school and the NFL headquarters in New York City. And so it was gimmicky, but it stood out. And 21 years later, here I am still at the NFL. 21 years later, Sam Rappaport isn't just with the NFL. She is the league's senior director of diversity and inclusion. I'm part of a larger team that is charged with creating the diversity, equity, and inclusion structure for the NFL and to help our 32 clubs so we can move towards a landscape that is more reflective of our fan base. And so it's, it's a personal passion of mine. And under the leadership of our chief diversity officer, Jonathan Bean, we've come a long way and I've seen progress and we're going to continue to see that as we develop out this strategy. And much of the strategy was focused on women's involvement in the league. Seven years ago, we created the NFL Women's Forum. We looked at 
which group of people are the most overlooked people within football operations? So under the leadership of Troy Vincent, our head of football ops, we created a program to bring 40 to 50 women every year to the NFL combine to meet with general managers, head coaches, and owners to potentially get jobs within the NFL. And over a six-year span, this we're starting our seventh year, there have been 225 opportunities secured through the program. These are great, but we're more about the ubiquity and the commonplace nature of our effort more so than the first. We want to make sure that the first isn't the last. But just as important as results is what Sam Rappaport calls the goal of normalization within the league. The goal here is for us no longer to need the qualifier. She's a female scout or a woman coach. We want it to be as common as what's happened in other industries, right? You don't really hear, oh, she's a female doctor. You just have a doctor. And they've come a long way in the medical industry in that sense. While support for the league strategy has been overwhelming, for former Minnesota Viking GM Rick Spielman, the league's diversity, inclusion, and equity structure was very personal. My personal story is we've adopted, me and my wife, six African-American kids out of the foster care system. So diversity has always been very important in our family. And when you look at the world through your kids' eyes and being white parents, you see a totally different world than you would if you didn't. So it's something that was very important to me. So I think that and I tried to do this, whether I did enough or not, you have to develop and bring up the females, the minorities through the ranks. Open up your search and give people opportunities that normally maybe wouldn't have been accepted five years ago, six years ago. What I've learned is by bringing in diversity, bringing in different areas that you normally wouldn't go in, it brings a whole new perspective on how you may look at things. Unfortunately, NFL franchises didn't always hire executives with a new perspective in mind. And it would be over 60 years from the league's inception before a team would finally be taken over by a woman. When in 1982, owner of the Philadelphia Eagles, Leonard Tose, handed the reins of the franchise to his daughter, successful attorney Susan Tose Spencer, as the team's counsel and general manager. My mom is the first and still to this day the only female to be a vice president, legal counsel, and general manager of a professional football team. Susan Toast Spencer's daughter, Marnie Schneider, shares her mother's story. My mom was a teacher when she first graduated from college and then started the tennis press business and wanted to be, you know, an entrepreneur and did really well with that and then ended up deciding to go to law school. And all the time, my grandfather, Leonard Toes on the Philadelphia Eagles, then ended up working on a few cases that were happening at the Philadelphia Eagles for my grandfather. And then after doing that, he looked around and he said, you know, I really would like you to come work for me. And she kept saying, no, dad, I don't want to do that. But then finally she acquiesced and ended up, like they say in football, suiting up to play and join the team. But playing for any team in Philadelphia is a challenge. As a city sports fans go, Philadelphia could be in a league of its own. In 1968, Having endured a particularly awful stretch of four seasons under head coach Joku Harich, not only would Eagles fans boo with such ear-splitting intensity that could be heard for miles, to punctuate their dissatisfaction, they draped 
a massive banner over the upper deck of Franklin Field, which simply read, Joe, please do us a favor and die. Still, Marnie Schneider saw a positive side with the city. Philadelphia in itself is a great city. When you look at some of the historical figures that started in Philadelphia, it really is a great place to break some molds. Susan Toast Spencer would certainly break some molds. And far tougher than Philly fans would be her father, Leonard Toast. In an interview for the Wharton Business School at the University of Pennsylvania, Susan Toast Spencer shared that her father had even asked that her groundbreaking hire would not be made public. My dad felt that being a woman in that business would be very negative for him as a macho guy and also for me because I would be subject to a lot of criticism and a lot of abuse. But the truth was I got it anyway, so it didn't matter. And Philly fans are tough. They're very tough. And when you put into place, you take a macho, all-male, stereotypical business like football and you say, okay, now I have a woman who's managing the operation, it doesn't go over well. And every loss was my loss. And everything I did was my fault. And eventually you figure out either I take it and I handle it, and I handle it within myself, or I get out. And my option was to stay and hang in there, which I did until my dad sold the club. Susan Toast Spencer would do everything she could. And she began by simply doing her job. In 1982, when Spencer took over the team, the Eagles were falling on hard times. Coming out of a strike with an aging roster that lacked star power, the team would finish the season with only five wins against 11 losses, dropping the team to last place in the NFC East. And with it, so too would drop Philly fans' support. At the time, the only thing up in Philadelphia was the Eagles' bloated budget, which needed a massive overhaul. Remembers the voice of Philadelphia Sports Talk Radio, Howard Eskin. She was she was a financial person. She was smart. And she made sure he didn't throw away the money anymore because she was trying to get the finances back in order. I mean, you still made money with the football team because you always sold out for the most part. You know, you might have had two or three thousand seats that are available, but that's chump change even in, in that world. But she had to straighten out the finances. And that's what she was in there for. And she, she did straighten them out. My mom came in and really tightened the ship. They were really cutting back on their expenses. She loved the challenge of being able to turn it around and put this team into making money and being a viable business versus kind of just a fun hobby. And while running the team, not only would Susan Toast Spencer write the Eagles franchise financially, more importantly, she connected with the team's temperamental fan base, unlike any GM in the league. Philadelphia fans, they live for Sundays. Their only happiness is maybe their children, perhaps, and celebrating what was happening at Veterans Stadium. So I think that going up to the 700 level and, and being able to celebrate your fans and acknowledge them is something that my mom really enjoyed doing. It really is about connecting. And I definitely know that my mom really enjoyed being able to do that and to bring some fun to them wherever they were and certainly let them know that they appreciated all their sacrifices to buy a ticket and go to the Eagles game on Sunday. Unfortunately for Susan Toast Spencer, the good feelings in Philadelphia wouldn't last. When near the end of the 1984 season, her father, Leonard Toast, began entertaining offers to sell the franchise. And a week before the Eagles' last game, 
A story had broken the Arizona Republic that a group out of Phoenix had all but closed a deal to purchase the team and move them. Susan Toast Spencer had in fact traveled to Phoenix to meet with potential buyers, but talks were exploratory and a deal was never on the table. Regardless, she would bear the full choleric vitriol of Philadelphia fans, press, and talk radio. It was awful. It was awful. Ultimately, business people know it was awful because they, for me, it was terrible because here I am, you know, a 15, 16 year old girl and they're calling my mother the wicked witch of the vet. And I knew that that wasn't true. I knew that they were exploring different options, mostly because that's what smart people do. Her job was to, as due diligence, to go and explore those opportunities. They ended up passing on that opportunity and it turned into a whole other thing that, you know, spiraled out of control. But yes, it was very hurtful. Months later, Leonard Tose, who bought the Philadelphia Eagles for $16 million in 1969, would wind up selling the franchise to Florida car dealer Norman Brahman for $65 million. As part of the deal, Brahman asked that Susan Tose Spencer be kept on as GM. But Spencer had been deeply hurt by fan reactions to her role in the sale. And though she would remain with the new ownership through their transition of power, she would turn in her resignation shortly after. Susan Toast Spencer, the NFL's first and only female GM, is in her 80s now. And while she took care of a city's football franchise years ago, it is her daughter Marnie who is now her full-time caregiver. It's really important for me and my three children. It's important for us to sustain our family legacy of my mom doing something that was a pioneer and being a groundbreaker for many people. My mother didn't want the spotlight. She, she wanted to run a business. She's a smart lady. She wanted to run a business, whether it was a plumbing business or a football team. And I think that that was something that Mike Freeman from Bleacher Report wrote basically that teams are run now the way that my mother was running the team in 83, 84, 85. I think she's a forgotten GM. No, Marnie, she is not. While Susan Toast Spencer may have thought her groundbreaking work with the NFL was no big deal, it was a very big deal for women who for the first time saw one of their own break the glass ceiling in an NFL franchise. But despite the milestone, the NFL still hasn't seen a female GM since Spencer. However, the league would inch closer to that goal when in 1997, Al Davis would be the first owner to hire a female executive officer. And his choice couldn't have been a more perfect match for the drive and spirit of his Oakland Raiders. She was a young woman from Brentwood, California, named Amy Trask. I did my undergrad work at Cal, Berkeley, and the Raiders at the time were in Oakland. And I fell in love with the team when I was at Berkeley. The year I moved back home to Los Angeles to go to grad school was the same year Al moved the team from Oakland to Los Angeles. People a year ahead of me started talking about internships, and I, of course, knew what an internship was, and they were talking about externships, and I had no idea what that meant. But I cold called the Raider organization and said, I'm a grad student, I'm down here, I'd love to do an internship for you. And the receptionist put me through to someone who said, kind of gruffly, what's an intern? And I told him, and he said, come on down. To be clear, on paper, 
Amy Trask was not your quintessential Raider prototype. I was the last kid picked for everything. On the playground, I was the last kid picked for dodgeball. I was the last kid picked for handball. Whatever the sport was on the playground, I was the last kid. So no, I was not an athlete growing up. My family just weren't avid sports fans. But something about the Raiders franchise connected with Amy Trask. Everything about the organization resonated with me. And so when I became an intern and then was ultimately hired full time, I didn't care what my role was. If I was told my job was to be on the sidelines during the game and pick up the scrunched up Gatorade cups and throw them away, I would have embraced that assignment and I would have been the best cup picker upper ever. It didn't matter to me what my role was. I wanted to contribute in any way I could. She also had a tremendous amount of respect and admiration for their owner, Al Davis. Al was known for giving people second chances, third chances, sometimes fourth chances or more chances. He gave people more chances than many people thought he should. He was willing to bring on board individuals that other organizations had labeled behavior problems. Well, I was labeled a behavior problem in kindergarten, and that label stuck with me through high school. And quite frankly, there's people who would say it's still an appropriate label. So here I am falling in love with this team, and the owner of the team didn't care if you were labeled a behavior problem. And you'd turn on a game, and you'd see another NFL team, really every other NFL team, rolling up to the stadium, and they get out of the team bus, and they're wearing sports coats and carrying briefcases. And then you'd see the Raider bus roll up, and the door opens up, and the players just come tumbling out, wearing whatever, looking like... And when given the chance, Amy Trask would make the best of it, using a very simple philosophy that had been handed down to her from her parents. I think hard work matters. That's how I was raised. I got that from my parents. There are so many valuable, valuable lessons my parents taught me, and one of them is the importance of hard work. We hear nowadays about, quote, working smart, close quote. Who wants to work dumb? I mean, of course you want to work efficiently and you want to work intelligently. But that's not a substitute for working hard. And what I say to people is work as hard as you can. And when you think you can't find a way to work any harder, find a way to work harder because it matters. As far as Amy Trask's gender is concerned, it was never an issue for her. Never, ever made any sense to me. Still doesn't make sense to me that I should want to walk into any room, any setting, a meeting, a board meeting, a meeting with bankers or lawyers or municipal leaders, a locker room meeting, a coaches meeting, a league meeting, any meeting, with the expectation, not just the hope, but the hope and the expectation that people won't be thinking about my gender. If I'm walking into that room and I'm focusing on my gender, I think I'm wasting my time. If other people want to waste their time, have at it, waste your time. I'm not thinking about it. I'm doing my job. And Trask bristles at questions as to whether she was tested because of her gender. 
I've been asked umpteen times, do I believe I was tested because I was a woman? I don't know the answer to that, but I think it's fair to assume. Sure, I was tested because I was a woman. People are tested all the time. People are tested because of their race, their gender, their religion, their age, their educational background, innumerable reasons. What's the best thing to do when you're tested? Ask the damn test. So that's where I put my focus. While Amy Trask's hard work and focus would pay off as she ascended in the Raiders organization, the most seminal moment in her career wouldn't come with promotion, but instead something that meant far more to her. I have a story that will be, you know, in my heart forever. It was really, really early in my career. And I was out on the practice field on the sideline with some of our business people. So I'm standing there, I'm doing a little bit of entertaining with some business partners, and I'm waiting to ask Al a question, waiting to introduce him to someone, I'm waiting for practice to be over so I can do a bunch of things with Al. And towards the end of practice was when media were allowed in. And so one of the members of the media yells out, oh, Gene Upshaw was at practice that day, visiting. And they yell out, hey, Gene, What's it like having a girl work for the Raiders? And Gene, in his booming, powerful voice, says, she's not a girl, she's a Raider. And if you can remember that Bugs Bunny cartoon where you see Bugs Bunny and Bugs' heart is beating so strongly that you actually can see Bugs' heart beating out of Bugs' body, that's what I felt like. I thought my heart was just going to explode. And that was one of the most special moments of my career. Amy Trask's career with the Raiders would last for 26 years. And as a result of her accomplishments, she has been awarded the 2017 Wise Woman of the Year, the 2018 Campanile Excellence in Achievement Award given by the University of California at Berkeley, and in 2019, the National Football League named her as one of the top 100 greatest game changers in NFL history. But the recipe for her success, she shares, is as simple as Al Davis's Raiders mantra, just win, baby. Find something you love to do and do it with all your heart without regard to compensation. Spoken like a true Raider. In today's NFL front offices, because of women like Susan Toast Spencer and Amy Trask, female executives are no longer an outlier. And recently, the NFL broke even newer ground when Sandra Douglas Morgan was announced as team president for the Las Vegas Raiders. It's my honor to be here today as the newest member of the Raiders family. Which brings us back to fans like Jane Coaston. I'm glad that women's voices are finally being heard. Women have helped you craft the sport. Yeah, we're in the boardroom, but what about female ownership? What about taking more power within the sport? We continue to consume and analyze the sport. And when we need to, criticize the sport. We're here and we love this game. We've come a long way, but we have a lot more work to do. This is Taylor Rooks. Thank you for listening. This has been an Audible Original, created by P.G. Kasheri. Produced by Audible Originals and Joy Road Entertainment. Neil Cabana, P.G. Kasheri, Matthew Hatchett, and Jim Young. Executive Producer, Nick D'Angelo. 
The production was designed, engineered, and mixed by Neil Cabana. Written by Jane Coaston. Acquisition and development, John Kim and Sonia Kim. Audible Legal Services, Whitney Marshall. Legal services provided by Pierce Law Group, David Albert Pierce and Carter Courtney. Audible Head of U.S. Content, Rachel Giazza. Head of Audible Studios, Zola Mashariki. Joy Road Entertainment is P.G. Kusheri, Matthew Hatchett, Bobby Glam-Smith, Tim Livingston, and Jim Young. Copyright 2022 by Joy Road Entertainment, LLC. Sound recording copyright 2022 by Audible Originals, LLC. Our special thanks, Samantha Gordon, Marnie Schneider, Howard Eskin, Amy Trask, Sam Rappaport.